Good morning. Welcome to Vintage Church Sunday morning gathering. I'm so glad you're here. Um, I know for a fact that God put us all here for a reason. First and foremost, to hear his word. Uh, secondly, to fellowship with other believers. And to grow in the faith. So I hope that you see a purpose today for you in being here. I hope that today you understand the reason that God has placed you in this room today. If this is your first time here, and I haven't introduced myself, I'm Bryce, one of the pastors here. Uh, we, our sermons are a little bit different than maybe you're accustomed to. What we normally do is we go book by book of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and so sometimes you come in halfway through a sermon, but it's its own sermon. Today, you're lucky, you came in on the first part of a two-part sermon, so you won't miss anything as long as you're back next week. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter again, 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 14 today, but it's a part of a larger idea uh, found in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. And over the last few weeks, we looked at um, our response in the end times, a Christian action in the end times. And today, we're going to look at a Christian response to trials in the end time, or a Christian response to testing, whatever wording you want to use there, in the end times. Um, if you would, pray with me. Let's ask God to meet with us through his word today and for open hearts. Lord, we, we love you so much. God, we understand, we must understand very quickly that the gift of God is Jesus Christ. And that it's not treasures, it's not acclaim. It's not peace, it's not friendship, it's not whatever else we can list that we long for or desire. The gift of God is Jesus. Lord, and the sooner we come to the knowledge that we are gifted with everything that we need because of Jesus, the sooner we can navigate this tumultuous life. Lord, help us to find our contentedness in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. As the things of the world pass away, as the desires of the world pass away, help our desire for Christ to grow. Lord, we praise you. You are the only one worthy of praise. You are the Alpha and the Omega of this world. You are the Alpha and the Omega of our salvation. Teach us from your word. Open our minds and hearts to be receptive to what it says, to see it as sufficient for our lives, Lord, enough, applicable, what we need. We praise you, we love you, we pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Last week we discussed our spiritual gifts, and uh, I hope you had uh, a bunch of helpful discussion from that. I know that we did in our MCs, our MCs had a wide range of thought and communication on, on spiritual gifts, but uh, we were also able, and I think from the feedback I've gotten from other missional community groups, we were also able to sort of help each other realize a little bit 
where we are gifted. I think that no one knows how you are gifted better than those who get to see your gifting firsthand. As a matter of fact, oftentimes it's difficult to see uh, your own gifting. Um, If you're enacting your gifting humbly, it's difficult to see because uh, you're just doing what you feel like God has called you to do. Also, I think uh, there is a stigma about identifying your gifting. I think if you are able to identify and communicate how God has gifted you, oftentimes you're looked at as arrogant because you're saying, I am this or I am that. You know, you should be letting God tell you what you are. Uh, It is not arrogant to see how God has gifted you, to use that to the glory of the Lord, and then to help others sort of nurture their own gifting. That's actually called contentedness. To see how God has gifted you and use that and then help others is called contentedness. It only Spiritual gifting only becomes arrogant when we think that the gift that God has given us is not good enough for us. So we go searching for other gifts. So we must be content in our gifts. We must relish in the gifts that God has given us. I would suggest to you to keep searching for your gifts and to keep trying to find ways that your gifts edify, your gifts build up the church and give glory to God. Because that, after all, there are really no other reasons for them. To build up the body of Christ, the local church, and to glorify God. We're going to move on to another section of 1 Peter today and visit a subject that has become common to us through 1 Peter and really common in uh, all of the Gospels, through all of the epistles. And that is the Christian response to testing. Specifically with the idea that we are in the end times. Remember, and if this is your first time, this might be a new thought to you, but every moment after the life and ministry and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, or every moment since then, I should say, is the end times. So since Jesus, all of history has been in the end times. So Peter is talking to these disciples, these followers, and he is helping them understand how the end times will play out. And he is letting them know that in the end times will come great testing. So how do you respond appropriately to the fiery testing in the end times? Will you read with me 1 Peter 4, 12-14? We're going to stop there today and then we'll finish 15-19 through next week. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial... When it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God 
rest upon you. Often the most difficult truth to grasp for new Christians or Christians in general is this dichotomy that Peter is discussing today or that we see from Peter today. And a dichotomy is just when two things, I be, this is the Bryce American Standard Version, you can call it the hillbilly definition, whatever you want to call it, but a dichotomy is when two things contradict but operate in the same space. That's how I think you can best define dichotomy for what we're, uh, and they don't always have to operate in the same space, but today they are. A dichotomy is when two things contradict, but um, really they're also both true in our lives. We see this in how Peter and the gospel writers and, and Paul and the rest of the epistles And even Christ himself speaks. It's a victory and reward of the Christian life, but it's always met with the idea of testing and fiery trials. We are more than overcomers, Paul said. Peter speaks of winning and winning and winning. And yet we get other sections like today speaking of the fiery trial, of the testing. Now, we are taught in our society that if we work really hard, if we struggle, then at some point in our lives, we will face smooth sailing. It'll be a time of rest. I mean, firstly, you need to know that that is generally a lie. Most people live their entire lives working and striving for a goal of peace and freedom that might come later. And if it comes, they get to experience it in the last few years of your life. So you give up the majority of your life to have peace in the last 5, 10, or 15. And honestly, friends, the vast majority of people never get there. Whereas the Christian philosophy is that we are victors through Christ... We have hope, we have peace, we have contentment, we have joy, while simultaneously facing trials and struggles and even persecution that never really go away. Only one of those ideals is realistic, friends, and it is the Christian philosophy that rings true with all young and old throughout history. You will always have victory with trials. You will always have wins with defeat. You will always have steps forward with steps back. As a matter of fact, what is not a contradiction but a paradox. Now, a paradox is when two things seem unlike each other or they seem to contradict each other, but two things are actually both true at the same time. Many people cannot go forward without stepping back. I've seen so many examples of this in life, but the one that keeps coming to mind is physical fitness. Tony and I have been working out together for over three years now, two to three times a week. Now, I've been, I've been working out off and on since I was in my 20s, but I don't think I've been more dedicated 
uh, to physical fitness than I have over the last few years with Tony. And what I found is that we can work out consistently and regularly, and every time we try something different or new, it reminds us that we are not quite as far along as we thought we were. It puts us back into a memory or a position of when we first started. Tony has been uh, running a 5K every day for over three, well over 300 days. That's pretty cool. He would never tell you that, so I'm going to tell you that. He's been running a 5K every, this is Tony, by the way. He's running a 5K every day for over 300 days with the goal of 365 days and beyond. It's probably getting pretty close at this point. Or maybe past. I'm not a good friend, so I forget those things. And yet, I saw Tony almost die Friday trying to exercise. As I was almost dying with him. In physical fitness, you have to realize that in order to grow, you must be torn down. Stephen McNeil is a relatively, not physically strong individual necessarily, but he's a strong person. He's emotionally strong. He's somebody I lean upon. But recently, Stephen started working out with Tony and I three days a week in the mornings, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And I text Stephen just about every time when a workout's done, and he'll be like, oh, that wasn't so bad, or I can't, everything hurts. See, even someone who finds himself able to lift heavy things or able to work around the house, because he does, I've seen the work that he slash Lexi does, but uh, they, he works around the house. Even somebody who's physically able, when they are met with a challenge, they have to step back before they can go forward. And I want to tell you, friends, this is the model of growth in humanity. But this is also the model of growth in Spiritual life. There are times when you can grow without much reverting back. But for the vast majority of your life, if you want to grow, you will have to be torn down a little bit in some areas of your life. In order to grow, you will likely have to take step backs. Now, I don't mean in a sinful way. I don't mean in order to grow, you have to like step back to a place where you had given your life to sin, but I mean tear down in order to build up. And that's what Peter's talking about today. Peter's talking about tearing down in order to build up. If you want to grow in your marriage, you may have to fight a little. Not physically, but, you know, argue a little. You're going to have to deal with things from your past. You're going to have to have real and uncomfortable conversations. Parents can all say amen to me with me on this, but if you want to raise godly children, you have to rein your children in. You might have to fight for days, weeks, months, or longer to be stern, to be strict, to be consistent in discipline while also being loving. Finding that balance is one of the most difficult things I've ever done. 
Finding the balance between loving my children and being stern and strict and disciplined. This is an area of growth for me. This is an area of growth for my children. It is stepping back in what I think I might have otherwise conquered in order to move forward. If you want to take on a larger role in the church, it doesn't start by walking into that role. It starts by walking in the most humble of circumstances until that role comes your way. Just because you step back, friends, doesn't mean you aren't moving forward. As a matter of fact, the implication of our passage today, just like gold is refined, one must face the fire in order to remove the impurities, remove the dross, and be purified. So as new believers or long-term believers, you must understand that all step backs aren't regressions. Some are just refining. And with Christ, we are both winning and losing at times. Winning and losing, but always ultimately winning. As it pertains to the fiery trial, as it pertains to testing, you are only losing, you are only singularly losing if you are not learning, if you are not growing if you are not using it as an opportunity to be more like Christ. So let's look at what Peter says about facing the fiery trial in the last days. And I've modeled this around our last two weeks of sermons. The end of all things is at hand. How will you respond to testing? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Knowing that every Christian, knowing what every Christian is facing, and knowing that every Christian will face testing, how will you respond to testing in your life? I think it's an important question because how we respond to testing says a lot about ourselves. It says a lot about our understanding of God's plan. It says a lot about our understanding of God's power. It says a lot about our faith in God's plan and God's power. It says a lot about our willingness to trust Christ and trust the process that he has foreordained for spiritual growth of believers. If the end times is at hand, if the end of all things is at hand, and Testing is a part of that. How will you respond? Peter in verses 12 through 19 says some important things about trials and testing that we should all come to learn. One, I think, is this. Testing is common to all people and certainly for Christians. Testing is common to all people and is certainly for Christians. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes your way. As though it were something that were stra- something strange that were happening to you. Some think, and maybe you said this, maybe you have thought this or said this, what is the point of becoming a Christian if the God who saved us from the past, the God who gives us victory and purports to love us, is still going to cause us to go through trials? I think that there, I know that there are people who have said this. It has been said to me. I have, uh, not necessarily by any of you, but I have witnessed it. I think there's a lot to be said about that question. The first thing that we must remember is that everyone suffers. 
Every human suffers. Christianity does not save you from cancer. Christianity does not save you from heart disease. It does not save you from injury. It does not save you from general sickness. It does not save you from that long groan that you give every morning when you wake up and get out of bed after your mid-30s. Christianity does not save you from poverty. It does not save you from layoffs or bad bosses. Christianity does not save you from heartache. Heartbreak, fighting with spouses, misbehaving children, or spiteful people. Everyone faces problems in life. As a matter of fact, Christianity does not remove you from anything but an eternity separated from God. That is the only thing Christianity removes you from. Christianity removes you from the possibility of an eternal separation from God. We don't have to endure condemnation because of Christianity, but we have to endure everything else. Do you know what your faith does? It doesn't remove you from anything. It strengthens you to endure through everything else. Peter says, don't be surprised when you face a fiery trial. Number one, because you are a human being. But number two, because you are a Christian and you are living for something, you are standing for something. As a matter of simple fact, people who stand for nothing face less trials because they have little to no opposition. If someone says, this is what I believe, what do you believe? Well, that's probably good. This is what I believe, what do you believe? That's probably good. But you're not creating any opposition. So why would you expect trials? You're on the fence or on the side of whoever may be near or next to you. Something you must understand about Christianity is there is no spiritual neutrality. There are no neutral people spiritually who are also obeying God and walking in faith. There is no spiritual Switzerland. So naturally, when you, when you say, I'm going to save my virginity for marriage, then there will be fiery trials along the way, as opposed to the person who says, there is no limit to how many people I will marry before I tie the knot. If you say, I want to raise my children to love God and love people, and that comes with a large list of standards, there are some fiery trials that will come along your way because we are surrounded by people who are standardless people. If you want your marriage to honor God and be relatively peaceful and have joy, there will be contention. The only contentionless marriage is the marriage that is not growing. If you want to make a public stand for biblical standards on sexuality and abortion, on loving all of your neighbors, no matter the shade of their melanin or geographical background, or the right ways to help people and the needy, there will certainly be some trials from all sorts of people along the political and social spectrum. The prescription to facing less trials is certainly not becoming a Christian. And is certainly not standing for the Bible. 
It is standing for and ascribing to nothing. If you want less trials, stand for nothing. If you want less trials, do not commit your life to Christ. If your goal is to live out of the realm of growth, out of the realm of trials, abandon your faith. Peter is saying, don't be surprised when you stand against your old life. When you stand against that old way and you stand for Christ if you are met with some opposition as if it were a strange occurrence. The word for fiery trial here is like the refiner's fire. It reminds us of uh, verses like Proverbs 27.1. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and a man is tested by his praise. Or Psalm 66.10. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. These trials strengthen us. When you first become a Christian, these testings may be taking a stand against your old self or, or walking away from old behaviors. This will ultimately embarrass those from your past life. It will wound or end friendships and it will likely create hostility towards you from even those that you once called dear friends. In dating, it is setting biblical standards for yourself and for your relationship, which will challenge you to be chaste and pure for God and your future spouse. In working, it will, it will cause you to work as unto the Lord and not for the praise of your boss or your coworkers. Working harder than people who don't care. Doing more than your job requires. In marriage, it will be having real conversations with your spouse and not running every time things get hard. It is not intentionally wounding your spouse, but lovingly guiding them or walking with them along this path of trial. With children, it will be giving them hard things to do. Listen, I am convinced of this more than ever. If you want to raise strong children who are ready for a tumultuous world, you start in the safety of your home by giving them hard things to do to do by giving them hard tasks, by challenging them. Most people don't do that because it's a challenge to yourself. You, you want to be lazy. It's just, look, I'll just do it. I'll just do it. It's easier that way. If you want to raise your children up to fight a generation that is ready to fight them, you better give them things to try to accomplish and work towards in the, in the house while the safety of their parents are watching over them. Don't let the first, thing, the first hard things they do be at 13 and 14 years old. When Don't let the first hard conversation you have be at 13 and 14 years old when other people are having it for you. Everything is hard for a child. Stop shielding them so much. Stop protecting them. Everything is a trial. But what happens when they grow? The hard things become remedial. And there's a whole new set of hard things that come, right? So for a child that is growing properly, there is this ongoing cycle of difficulty and testing and then accomplishing, and then those things become remedial, and then new testing occurs. It is the cycle of growth in a child's life. 
but also it really sets the example of how you measure growth in a Christian's life. If you have a new set of hard things cycling through your life on a regular basis, and <coughs> excuse me, and if those things of the past are a little easier, they're a little more understandable, they're easier to deal with, then you are actually experiencing spiritual growth. If you are only cycling through the same difficult things over and over again, you aren't growing. That's actually called avoidance, and it is a coping mechanism that infantilizes adults. We have an entire generation of people right now that are trying to remove every barrier of difficulty from their life. Every hateful word, every opposition, every challenge. You can't make good grades, let's remove them. You can't pass the test, let's stop testing. How is that generation supposed to be proven, number one? How will they grow? So the Christian life, like the life of a child, should be a cycle of growing in certain things, making those things remedial. First John says they become not a burden to you. And then finding new challenges so that growth never stops. It should not be growing or attempting to grow in the same things over and over again with little success. That is not spiritual growth. Now, there are things, and I bear testimony to this, there are things that you will always struggle with. You will have those things that you always struggle with, but there should be some victory over those things. There should be some, really some verifiable victory over those things in your life at some point. Peter is telling us that the way we grow is through trials and testing. So don't be surprised because everyone faces trials, but also because the example setter for walking, the example setter for walking as a Christian was known as the man of sorrows. The one we are supposed to follow, the example that was set for us was set by the man of sorrows. He was also a man of victory. He was a man of power. But Jesus was known as the man of sorrows. Christ set the example for walking in trials and walking in victory at the same time. It shouldn't be strange because we are told to expect it. And that is what happens when you challenge yourself to walk more closely with Jesus. The sufferings, the trials, they come upon you and they prove you. As one who belongs to that man. We are called a new creation. And the father used the fi uses the fiery crucible to melt and to mold us into the way he sees fit. Because of this, we must get something perfectly clear. Suffering, testing, Trials are not a sign of the absence of God, but actually a sign of the presence of God. If you are trying with all you have in your marriage and you are still facing trials, it could be the presence of God and the refiner's fire. 
If you are trying to raise children to be Christ followers and you are facing difficulty, literally everyone ever, it is likely a sign of the presence of God and not the absence of God. If you are working without recognition, if you are loving without reciprocation, it could be a sign of the presence of God and not the absence of God. Testing and the refiner's fire is most often a sign of the love and presence of God and not the absence of God. So do not be surprised, Christians, when you walk in the same manner that Christ has walked, do not let it catch you off guard because it is actually Christ carrying you through that moment in order to see you grow. Let me move on to what Peter says next. Look at verse 13. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. We've hit on that already. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So Peter is saying in verse 13 that testing should be viewed joyously. Not only should we not be surprised by facing various trials, but testing should be viewed joyously. Joyously, in the age of health and wealth, in the age of just follow your heart and and Jesus and everything will be okay, we have lost a healthy understanding of the testing of God. Peter says to view testing in a healthy way, it should be viewed joyously. It should be joyously received. Peter actually uses the word but here. And that is in opposition to the statement he just made. With that word, he is saying, don't be surprised by your testing, but instead meet your testing joyously. Joy in testing is an idea that is so foreign to us. It is so foreign to us, it is so foreign to the world and to the church that those who grasp it shine like Shining stars, even in the midst of God's people. How is this person happy? They are poor. How is this person happy? They are a widow. How is this person happy? They aren't pretty. How is this person happy? They don't have an important role in the church. How is this person happy? And how do they have so much joy with everything that is going wrong with them? With all the hands that God has dealt them. Peter says a mandate to all Christians is that instead of shock and disbelief, instead of anger towards God or anger towards others because you are facing testing and trials, we should face testing and trials with joy. Why? He mentions two reasons. Because you get to share in the same path as your precious Savior and two, trials are the only these trials now are the only ones you face. Peter says you should meet trials with joy because you get to face, you get to uh, share in the same path as your Savior. The reasons Christians, the reason Christians should be joyous is simply this. Because even if you face great illness, you don't face it without Christ. And even if you face marriage issues, you don't face them without Christ. And even if you face troublesome children, you don't face them without Christ. If you face lack of love, if you face lack of respect, or whatever it may be, you don't face those things without Christ. You name something on the long list of testing that every Christian will face, and you see Christ at every single test. 
But also, Peter says, if cancer kills a Christian, then Christ embraces them at the point of death. And they never face another trial again, another testing. Peter says the trials and the testing you face right now, you can meet them joyously because that's it. When you are with Christ, they are no more. No more testing, no more trials, no more condemnation, no more burdens. If we have to face years of rocky marriage and years of child rearing and troubles, they all end when we meet Christ. Friends, I want to tell you it's worth the wait. Not that I've experienced it, but I have faith in what the Bible says. Peter says you may face trials now, but in the end, because you are in Christ, you will rejoice forever. For a Christian, then, the trials of this life are the end of all trials. We get off easy. Because those without Christ face trials now, still, without him, without being overcomers, without being conquerors, and then they face the worst yet to come. That is eternity without him, without his love, without his help, without peace. Rejoice when you face trials because that is union with Christ. In Acts 5, the disciples were reviled and they said, the, uh, the testimony of Acts 5 is they walked away having considered themselves blessed because they were able to share in this union of suffering, of trials, of testing with Christ. Matthew 5, 5.12, Jesus says to his disciples, Rejoice and be glad. Similarly to the words we see today in verse 13. Because your reward is in heaven. For they persecuted the prophets who were before you. One commentator says those who don't rejoice in their suffering are lacking the necessary faith, faith to rejoice in the coming of Christ. Rejoicing in your testing, in your trials, requires union with Christ. There's one last thing that we must glean from what Peter is saying today. It's found in verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We should not only face trials, we should expect trials, we should face them joyously, but trials are a blessing for those with the spirit of God. Peter says if you are insulted... We see it earlier in 1 Peter, and I said it to you, and I want to say it again. There is a common misunderstanding of persecution. Peter says, if you were insulted, the most common form of persecution spoken of in the Bible is with words and character assassination and reviling. The most common form of persecution spoken of in the Bible is not death. It is not beating although those are testified in the Bible. The most common form of persecution is with words, with character assassination, with reviling. As a matter of fact, there is no evidence that at the time Peter wrote uh, this uh, letter that killing Christians was common. It was not even lawful. It was not even uh, written in the law that they could do that as a legal means of eliminating a Christian. 
As a matter of fact, most of the killing that went on in Nero's day was in response to the great fire of Rome. Nero, I believe, was trying to cover up his actions in the great fire of Rome, and he blamed it on Christians. And so Christians were hotly persecuted to the death. Now, Christians have died countlessly throughout history. But the point I'm trying to make is that the most common form of persecution a Christian will face is the words of others. I say that because just a short time ago, Christians were threatened with imprisonment and they were threatened with words and people said, that's not persecution. But this is what Peter is saying the fiery trials come with. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, the majority of Christians will not be killed for their faith. I think even if things get worse than we've ever seen them in our lifetime, we will not be killed for our faith, probably. When you see testing, when you see trials, when you see persecution in the Bible, it's almost always talking about people using their words and power to demean, to belittle, and to set back Christians. So if you are one who thinks that real persecution only happens when you are being beaten or killed, your thoughts are incongruent with the Bible. And I will say this again, as I said as I said a few months ago, or a month or so ago, and as I said a few years ago, America is in the early stages of real biblical-like persecution. Real persecution, real testing is when people stand, or people use their words and their power to make it difficult to live a normal life or a life like other people live. To make it difficult for people to stand up for their faith. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, Peter says, real persecution. Peter says you are blessed. In verse 13, the rejoicing and the glory is in the future tense. In verse 14, the blessing is today. If you are insulted, you are blessed right now, today. Peter is saying when you are continually reproached, you are continually blessed. Just like at every testing and every trial, there is always Jesus. At every insult, there is always blessing. At every curse, there is always blessing. At every setback, there is always blessing. Because when we are insulted by humans, we are always blessed by God. This may come from... This insulting, this reviling may come from people you lo- who love you, who you love, who purport to love you. It may come from people who you interact with on a regular basis. The sender of this reviling may be varied, but the result is the same. You are blessed. You are blessed for the reasons we mentioned previously. Because you are like Christ, because it is, it is proof of his presence in your life, and because you are growing through this testing. I want to finish with these two thoughts that Peter ends verse 14 with as more reasons for counting your blessing, as more blessings, as more reason you are blessed. Look at verse 14 again. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God 
rest upon you. What I'm about to say cannot be overlooked or understated. And if nothing I've said has motivated you to this point, to face testing and trials, hopefully this will. Peter said first, when you face testing well, the spirit of glory rests upon you. Do you know what he's saying? He is saying, when you face trials in an unsurprised, blessed sort of way, You are a visible and physical representation of the Shekinah glory of God. Do you know what the Shekinah glory is? The Shekinah glory was the literal presence of God that indwelled the tabernacle for the people of Israel. Peter is making reference to the Shekinah glory here. He is saying... When you, are, when you consider yourself blessed in trials, when you draw into Christ and not away from Christ during trials, when you follow him in the testing, when you're not surprised by it, but when you overcome it, what you're actually doing is you are shining a light so bright from yourself onto Christ, it is as if the Shekinah glory of Christ has come back down to earth through you. Do you want people to see Christ in you? Live for Christ in everything. You want want people to see Christ in you? Let the Spirit reign in you in your testing. And then you will shine like the brightest star, the glory off of you and back on to Christ Jesus. Ultimately, that's our goal. And is it not true? Is it not just practically true? Even if you don't believe me that Peter is saying you are a visible representation of the Shekinah glory, even if you don't believe me, isn't it just practically true? Think about the people who have suffered the most loss and followed Christ. Those people are like the brightest stars in the church, are they not? The people who have suffered great loss, the people who have had great trials, the people who have had a a difficult past, and they still follow Christ somehow. Those people are like shining stars. You might say something like, I could never be like them. You might say something like, "I, I want to be like them. Maybe not with all the trials, but I want to be like them. When you are like Christ in the way he is prescribed in 1 Peter, you are a visible representation of his glory, not only to the church, but to others who might see you. I believe that people will repent and believe the gospel because simply because of this. Now, I believe that faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the word of God, and we should teach, and we should preach the word of God. But I believe that God will save and has saved and can save just through this representation of people who go through testing and trial well. People who draw into Christ when they everything within them says run away. There's also this. The spirit of God's glory rests upon you, but also this is, this is the final one for me. The spirit of God himself rest upon you. 
We should count it joy not because anyone wants to suffer or face trials, but because everyone faces trials and troubles, and yet only Christians have the promised Holy Spirit to go through them. We should consider ourselves blessed because everyone faces difficult times, but only Christians know how to navigate them because God is indwelling them. So to answer the question I asked before, what is the point of becoming a Christian if you're going to struggle with testing and likely more than if you didn't become a Christian? Because only Christians, only Christians can struggle well. Those who struggle well without Christ are outliers and they're not the norm. Only Christians have the Spirit of God. And only the Spirit of God is the promise and power of salvation in all times and through all things. Who can face cancer well without the Spirit of God? Who can face marriage struggles well without the Spirit of God? Who can face loneliness well without the Spirit of God? Who can face pesky children well without the Spirit of God? I purport to you, no one or very few. And it's still without the Spirit of God, a castle made on sand. Friends, we are not left without the Spirit of God. If you are in Christ, He is in you. He lives in you. He reigns in you. He overcomes in you and through you. There is nothing that you will face today, tomorrow, in this life that cannot and has not been conquered by God himself. And friends, one day, we will all meet with him. And we will all stand before him. And he will say to those who are in Christ, your work is done. Rest. Rest. Pray with me today. Father God, you are so good. Lord, I cannot imagine the thought of facing some of the things that I've faced without you. And I've had a relatively simple life. I cannot imagine the thought of facing some of the things that I've faced without you, Lord. How desperate are people to know you and have you. Lord, as Christians, it should cause us to... to draw in and come closer to the glory of God through the Spirit of God so that we can be more than overcomers. But also, it should cause us to have a great stirring and a great feeling of res responsibility to share the gospel to the world, to share the means of rescue to the world, to share the means of overcoming through trials and testing to the world. We have the answer, Lord. We have the solution. Help us to draw into it, for, into Him for ourselves and help us to proclaim the truth of the gospel to others. We praise You. We love You. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.